Connecting life and faith. This is Connections. I'm Colleen Hood with Mike Tom. Welcome to Connections. As 2020 continues on and COVID-19 continues on, Canadians are hearing more and more about the importance of ICU or intensive care units. We're joined today by Dr. Margaret Herridge. She is Professor of Medicine and Senior Scientist at the University of Toronto as well as University Health Network. She's also a critical care and respirology staff physician at Toronto General Hospital. Today she'll talk to us about ICUs, the intensive care units in hospitals across Canada. She'll also tell us about the impact that COVID-19 has had on those units. That's today on Connections. Dr. Margaret Herridge is from the University of Toronto. She also works in the city's ICU units as a doctor there, teaching and practicing medicine. So last week was Canadian Intensive Care Week, and 2020 is definitely a year where we need to draw awareness to our intensive care situation. Tell us a little bit about the importance of intensive care. Well, I, I, first of all, I would start by saying thanks for even asking me that question because I think <clears throat> critical care or intensive care prior to COVID or SARS or events that really bring the critical care unit um, to the public's attention, we are often a, a subspecialty or a part of the hospital that's relatively um, invisible to the lay public. Um, <clears throat> I think that the lay public may not necessarily realize what critical care is and how this is distinct from emergency medicine um, or other specialties that look after patients who are uh, very uh, unwell, unstable, uh, may require, um, you know, intubation, mechanical ventilation, etc. cetera. Um, <clears throat> critical illness um, is um, uh, very... Um, what can I say? I would always say to people that critical illness is a catastrophic life event. Um, it is for the patient. It is for the family. And I think one of the good things, if I could frame it that way, that's come from COVID is that people now understand what critical care and critical illness look like. Um, and um, this is a, an important thing because... Um, it helps the public to understand what severe illness looks like and the protracted recovery after critical care. Um, and uh, also that this is a very cost-intensive uh, part of the hospital um, and, uh, you know, very, very resource-intensive, that these uh, resources are used for patients to try to save their lives. However, after their life has been saved by um uh, intensive care teams, because we work as an interprofessional team, um, there's a lot of work to be done after people leave the units, um, a lot of work in terms of physical, cognitive, um, psychological recovery for the patient over not days or weeks, but really uh, months when people are very ill, and also the psychological um recovery and healing that needs to occur for families who've had a very traumatic life event as well and had sort of a, a different but a, a parallel um, uh, and challenging experience. Anna, I don't know if there is a typical day in the ICU, but if there is a typical day in the ICU, like what's the scope of patients that you have in a unit? What mm -hmm. kind of things are they dealing with and recovering from? 
Well, in in non-COVID times, um, each unit um, around the country would, um, community units would tend to have um, a more diverse case mix, including um, people who um, would have very severe infections, sepsis, um, uh, may have problems with um, uh, heart failure and require um, uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation um, uh, because of uh, the buildup of fluid in their lungs related to heart problems, uh, liver failure, um, kidney failure. So all of the failing organ systems can lead to the need for um, uh, medications that artificially elevate the blood pressure or the need for an endotracheal tube and a mechanical ventilator to support uh, gas exchange, oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange in the context of, you know, um, one or more failed organ systems. In the academic ICUs, um, so where I work, uh, which is at the Toronto General and academic ICU at the University of Toronto, we have a very large population of transplant patients. Um, our uh, um, sister hospital, the Toronto Western Hospital, has um, a very large population of um, uh, patients with uh, uh, brain injury, uh, uh, neurosurgical, complex neurosurgical procedures. So the specialty care um, often drives different units. Sunnybrook has a very large trauma population, for example. So there's specialized units that might look after very specialized patients. But in the community, um, people would be looking after patients who are very sick from um, sing, you know, from one system or multiple systems that have failed to the extent that they need um, support with, ble- with uh, breathing, pardon me, or uh, blood pressure in general. So now with COVID taking over all of Canada and all of the world, how is this affecting the intensive care that we are seeing in hospitals across the country? Yeah, I, I would say that during COVID, during the first wave, um, our ICU here at the Toronto General had only COVID patients in it. So that had a number of uh, sort of repercussions. The first is that unusual for us to look after patients who have the same diagnosis. Um, The COVID pneumonia and its associated acute respiratory distress syndrome, which caused um, very low oxygen levels, um, was really what brought people to the ICUs, and our ICU was filled with the sickest patients in the uh, GTA, uh, the greater Toronto area. So it was a very... um, unusual situation to look after so many extremely critically ill patients, some of whom were on ECMO, this extracorporeal membrane oxygenation um, uh, sort of intervention. Um, So for the interprofessional team, that was an unusual experience. I think that um, uh, from the interprofessional team standpoint as well, it was... um, uh, very difficult to not be able to be um, in close contact with the families. Uh, normally, we would update families um, frequently in person um, so that they can travel this uh, really difficult um, health journey with us and understand what's going on, you know, moment to moment, day by day. 
that was uh, very terrible for the families that they were um, uh, not present in the ICU and we were having, in some cases, end-of-life discussions um, uh, remotely and, <clears throat> you, you know, using tablets, etc. Um, and the other consequence, of course, so outside of COVID, is that our normal case mix, the patients that we normally look after, are not there. So, um, you know, having to really uh, decrease um, the um, regular surgeries or transplants in our unit's uh, case um, and um, really not being able to offer critical care services to the diverse um, population of patients who normally reside in our units. You mentioned uh, the doctors being cut off from the family members of patients. We've heard a lot about family members speaking about being separated, but it it, does it take an emotional toll on the doctors as well? Do they take on a bit of that weight that the family's feeling in these situations? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's, um, I mean, <clears throat> I think all of us uh, found it very difficult, not just the physicians. I mean, we work in a team. So the physicians, the critical care nurses, the critical care respiratory therapists, our pharmacists, our physiotherapists, we have a nutritionist. We have a very dense uh uh, you know, a very deep team in ICU. We work as a team, and um, it was very difficult. Um, I think we felt um, extremely distraught that uh, these patients were so isolated, um, couldn't be with their loved ones, we couldn't keep their loved ones updated. Um, you know, I, I think that was... Um, a very difficult um, aspect um, to the first wave, uh, definitely. But you know, I would always be want to say that it's not it's not really about us, right? I mean, mm. it was very difficult for the team for sure. But I think overwhelmingly, people's um, emotional um, <clears throat> upset was also. Uh, just as you mentioned, you know, uh, just a feeling for the patient being isolated, the family being isolated, the family not being um, able to spend as much time with a loved one who might be dying, even though we tried to make allowances for that and tried to allow people access for that as much as possible. But remember, there were often multiple people who were sick in a family and they were too sick to come in. Um <clears throat> You know, they were frightened to come in. There are all these other factors. They might have, uh, you know, at high-risk um, family members. Many of our patients live in a generational uh, home, multi, you know, multi-generational home. So all of that. And I think that you're right. The emotional toll was significant. Um, it was hard to work in that environment. But I think we all were extremely distraught. Sorry. <clears throat> we're extremely distraught by... Um, you know, the the anguish of these families. It was um, very, very disturbing, very concerning. As the second wave uh, really spreads across Canada now, what are the next steps for ICUs and and what we can what we can be doing as the general public as well? Mm. Well, that's a, an interesting question. I mean, I think there's, I think that. Um, the province in Canada has, you know, responded um, extremely well and, you know, really uh, 
uh, not politicize this um, and really tried to emphasize this as a public health issue, which, of course, it is. Um, and I think the public's tried very hard to be as responsible as they can, even though, obviously, it's, people are fatiguing from all of these various measures. Um, the ICU community has been tracking patients very closely with the province, um, trying to make sure that we have adequate resources. I think in the second wave, uh, we're uh, trying to balance um, uh, sustaining our regular critical care activity with trying to ensure that we can accommodate COVID patients and their families. Um, <clears throat> and um, we're really in the midst of that right now. I think we are about three to four weeks behind Europe. We're all sort of waiting to see how our modeling um, develops and how um, the cases rise and, and what the um, data are like in terms of uh, critical care use. Um, but we're trying not to, um, you know, completely halt all the other activity. We're really trying to balance this so that we can keep serving the community while simultaneously looking after the uh, uh, COVID, uh, critically ill COVID patients as well. So we're just in that place right now trying to sort that out. And, um, you know, we'll see over the next several weeks what transpires. Have you learned anything from the past with, with SARS or MERS when it comes to intensive care and how we can better prepare ourselves for what's to come? Yeah, I mean, I think after SARS, there was a lot of reflection on how to organize critical care services um, in Ontario. And um, they are really very organized as a result. I think people recognized we needed to um, have, um, uh, you know, centralized oversight and coordination and, um, uh, you know, have uh, some system change in that way. Um, that has definitely helped us respond to uh, COVID-19, without a doubt. So SARS was, even though it was an outbreak, it wasn't a pandemic, um, still um, created a lot of concerns within the system and really helped to get the critical care uh, groups more organized and more centralized. So that was definitely a learning piece from SARS. MERS was not a big um, public health issue uh, for Canadians. Um, to the same extent, obviously, that we may have learned about SARS and, and are currently learning about COVID-19. Doctor, as we uh, leave you, just wondering, what do you want Canadians to know as we head into, uh, well, I can't even, I've lost track of how many months this is now of dealing with COVID-19. What would you just like people to know and understand? Well, um, I think that, um, it's good for Canadians to understand, um, just getting back to your earlier questions, what critical illness looks like. Um, because many um, patients who um, don't know what critical illness looks like may feel that um, this is, um, you know, a, a very extreme and aggressive form of care that almost becomes a default form of care for patients who are very sick. And I think being able to spot like this um, is really important for the lay public to think about 
you know, uh, patients who um, may have complex illness or unrecoverable illness or may be very, very elderly and very, very frail to um, think about also whether critical illness um, and being this sick and the sort of disability and the cognitive and mood disorders that come about on the other end of this, if you survive it, if that's something that they want. I think this is a, a great opportunity to help the lay public to understand what critical illness looks like and to think about whether this is something that might be right for them. I, I think in the context of COVID-19, um, you know, uh, we see that older patients, uh, frail patients, patients with complex medical issues, um, people who are in very, very poor states of health prior to um, developing COVID-19 pneumonia and this acute respiratory distress syndrome, which causes you know, very low oxygen levels and needs uh, intubation, mechanical ventilation support, other system support. Um, we know that these folks struggle a lot. Many of them die with us in the ICU, and many of them who leave um, have sustained important disabilities that I've already mentioned. Um, and um, I think thinking in advance, you know, for many folks, is this a level of care that would be right for me? Um, is this the sort of uh, disability that I would be able to face recovery from over months? Um, and uh, to think a little bit about that, because <clears throat> um, there's a cost to being this sick. And, and I think that uh, while I, I, I'm very proud of all the uh, wonderful work and all the care that we're able to provide in the ICU, it's not necessarily the place for every single patient who may not be able to withstand this kind of episode of sustained extreme um, illness. Um, and, and I think it's a great opportunity to dialogue much more and bring a lot of those more general discussion points about critical illness, critical care recovery, and outcomes to the lay public. I think for the COVID folks um, in the public now who are worried about COVID-19, um, I would also just reiterate all the things that public health officials have already said um, repeatedly. You know, the, the these sensible things about masking and distancing and not being in large groups, et cetera, make a huge difference. And there are very tangible ways to protect yourself. Um, if you do get sick, though, and um, you're someone who comes to the ICU, I think it's important to know that um, this is a, a skilled group who will really take good care of you um, and um, will do their best to keep your family informed under difficult circumstances, but that the patients who come to us, even relatively younger young patients who may have been previously well before, will still... Um, when they leave the ICU after a few weeks, will be unable to walk, will have to rehab back from that, uh, may have other um, organ system issues, and as I mentioned, some, you know, um, cognition issues, mood disorders um, like depression, anxiety, uh, PTSD, which are part of the package of being very severely critically ill. And these are... Um, sort of the sequelae of critical illness that we really need to um, 
provide a lot of support for um, and uh, and the government to be aware of this in terms of the creation of many folks who will require um, uh, sort of graduated return to work may require some uh, support in returning to work, disability support, this sort of thing. So um, there are many facets of all of this that really affect the general public and, um, you know, the way public health responds, the way the government responds, and, you know, how we all perceive this as uh, individual community members. Are there any resources out there that are available for our listeners who may hear a conversation or are interested in learning more about critical care, critical illness, I mean, intensive care? Are there any resources out there? Well, um, I, uh, there are many CIHR, since I, CIHR contacted me um, to speak with you folks. Um, the CIHR uh, Canada's uh, national uh, research um, funding agency um, supports many critical care uh, researchers. Um, my group is, is one group of many, many groups. Um, our national research consortium in critical care is the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. Um, this is a very um, accomplished group. It's a world-leading group in critical care research. Um, there is a website for the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group, and uh, people can learn more about the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group and our sister organization, the Canadian Critical Care Society. Um, these websites have a lot of general information um, about critical care, and um, uh, people can uh, learn much more about this uh, specialty about who we look after, who we are, um, uh, from these main resources. And um, I want to just add, too, that our current CIHR-funded study um, on COVID-19 outcomes, this is a national multi-center outcome study of all COVID survivors, co-led by myself and, and my colleague, Dr. Angela Chung. We also have our own website for CanCove, and people can um, look at that website for information about outcomes after COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Harridge. Remember, Connections airs twice a day, once in the morning as well as once in the evening. You can also find the entire interview in podcast style at podcastville.ca or wherever else you get your favorite podcast from. We'll talk to you again on Connections.